A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. It's December the 10th. Christmas tree is up at this stage, I'm sure. The unnecessary panic about buying presents has begun. Mm. And today, Hello. the festive period officially begins. A second captain at the Irish Times brings you... Our sports book of the year review 2013. But 2013 is such a short time frame, really. So we're going right the way back through the history of sports writing to bring you some of the great sports books ever produced. Merry Christmas, son. Merry Merry Christmas, Christmas, Ken. Merry Christmas, Kieran. You bought your tree again this year? No. Not yet? Don't think I will, actually. No? No. You're normally, I've been in your house around Christmas time. There's normally a nice, nice smell of pine needles again well look I don't know if I should admit this <laughs> that's just Ken's deodorant <laughs> but uh, no it's it's the tree it's it's fine itself for the month itself but it's then the disposal mm, you of know, that how tree. do you dispose of it yeah. a couple of years ago my mum and dad just said that's it we're just getting the plastic one yeah. and I, you know, I was upset you know I was upset I thought you know come on we can we can do this, you know. They live out in the country; yeah. they can dispose of it <laughs> yeah. however they like. I mean, I'm not going to ask any questions, but you know, I can see where they're coming from. Yeah, no muss, no fuss. Yeah, just a bit of uh, woodland breeze, air freshener, room yeah. scent. Exactly. You so know? you're going the way of Kieran Murphy's parents, are you? Yeah, you're just fed up with trying to dispose of it, so you're going to go fake this year. Yeah, I mean, if someone was to come and take it away from my house, well, that does happen. The, yeah, I went to buy a Christmas tree around Harold's Cross, Ken. Might as well give it a plug. Can't yep. remember the name of the GA club, right. but it's around Harrow's Cross. It's, it's, right, it's right by, by a little pub there on Harrow's Cross Road. You just go through the back to the car park. Not only do they deliver it for free, yeah. they collect it for free. Well, they say they will. This hasn't happened yet. And when you say for free, how much is the tree? The tree was 55 euro, <laughs> including the stand. That's about average for a... So you're saying well, delivery and collection cost 750 a pop? 40 euro, you think you get a decent tree? Uh, yeah, 40, yeah, I'd, be, I'd be disappointed, I'd be disappointed to pay more than 40, than 40 euro for a yeah. tree. Well... Yeah. I don't know what yeah. size tree you're I think there. I think my, uh, my, my fake plastic Christmas tree is still in the boot of my car. I haven't gone to look for it yet, but when I do, around the 19th of December, that's what I'm going to go a with. A quick digression, Murph. I didn't need a free delivery of this tree because I had arrived in my Fiat Punto, which, yeah. despite being a very small car, has got the advantage Pack. of being a hatchback. You can fit a lot in there. Yeah, of course you and can. I, yeah. I proudly told the people there, no, no, I don't need free, free yeah. del- a delivery. I've got this Punto here. I mean, yeah. this will bring it home. Look, Punto did the job, got it home, put it up, Next time I tried to drive the car, 
it was broken down. Now, I'm not blaming the Christmas tree, but I'm just saying Pine the final journey of my 01 Punto might have <laughs> been delivering my Christmas tree. Ah, that, well, that would be a pity in ways, that wouldn't would be, it? it would be nice I, for one, would be sad to see that car go. This is my favourite type of show all year. I really love this. And an email here from a like-minded individual, Jack in Tullamore, secondcaptains at hey, irishtimes.com is the email address. That's secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Hi, lads. This is my late, late toy show. Can't wait for the podcast. Jerry, online radio show. Jack, but we'll move on. Jerry Duffy's TikTok 10 must be the best Irish sports book this year. I already uh, have Rough Ride, Secret Life of Footballer, and the sports gene is also in my stocking. I'm really going through a sports book buzz at present. Sounds like you are. I bought the sports gene after listening to the podcast, online radio show. I also love US Murph, and I'm a recent convert to American football. I need a good recommendation for a book about American football. I would love to learn more about the draft, college football, and my newly adopted New England Patriots. <laughs> really, really going for the underdog there. Yeah. Due to oh, my J1 Boston out. roots. I was going to support Cleveland Browns, but couldn't do that to myself. Yeah. Have a whooper Christmas, it says from Jack and Tullamore. We'll have a whooper Christmas. A whopper Christmas? Oh, I'm going to have a whooper Christmas. Whopper. That is the kind of enthusiasm yeah. we're talking about. In regards to American football books, I have to confess, well, I don't think I'm alone in this. A lot of the great American writing on their major sports has centered around baseball. There's certainly a lot more on baseball mm. than there is on American football or basketball. Not to say there are no good books in those other sports, but I have read Paper Line by George Pimpton, for example, but that's not really a book about American football. It's a book about a journalist trying to play a professional sport, yeah. which is hilarious more than anything else. Boys Will Be Boys, I know by Jeff Perlman about the Dallas Cowboys team in the 90s. I've read long extracts from that and it seems superb. Yeah. Never got around to reading the whole There's uh, Also by Jeff Perlman is uh, Sweetness by about Walter Payton, which is supposed to be really, really, really good as well. Um, but I mean, you know, if you're talking about the rules, you could probably just Google that. <laughs> You know, rather just than know, buy a book about or it. Or just watch matches. Just watch the matches. That That's could, the way to learn that it. Could also We're going to talk about what makes great writing by talking to two of the best journalists in Ireland and the UK. Keith Duggan of the Irish Times right here in this building, writer of a number of great books. And Donald McRae from The Guardian, who's twice won the William Hill Sports Book of the Year Prize. First up, we'll consider the best of this year's lot. Maliki Clerken has popped into the studio. Maliki, how are you doing? Great. I hate to start this off on a downer, yeah. because this should be a joyous occasion, talking about oh, the best sports writer of the year. Yeah, yeah. Not a huge amount of brilliant Irish sports books this year. Yeah, it's, you know, some years and certainly in the last 10 years, like the the quality has been massive and the quantity of the quality has also been very high. I don't know. I think this year there just seems to be an awful lot of sort of six and a half, seven. And yeah, a there's nothing, there, there aren't many Irish books this year. I can't really think of any that you'll look back on in 10 or 15 years as one of the iconic ones. I think so, yeah. And and the thing is, in all the other years, we've we've always had one. Like you, you go like even you know the year when Christy O'Connor's the club the club came yeah. out. Uh, just you know, it came sort of came out of nowhere, but just this brilliant, brilliant book. Um, there there isn't really one of those this year. I don't. I think it's fair enough to say that might be made. That little shortfall can might be made up if we look a little bit further afield to some of the football books. Not necessarily in the UK, but. We're going to go through some of the books later, but it's a lot of good European football offerings, I think, aren't they? Yeah, I think it's been a very good year for football books, actually. I don't know if that's just because I actually read quite a lot this year. <laughs> had a bit of downtime. Finally, finally, <laughs> finally pulling your weight. Just had a bit of downtime there, so, uh, yeah, you know. A couple of months there. Right? And uh, managed to get through quite a lot of reading, so... Yeah, I, I, I've been impressed. Zlatan, Sid Lowe. He was lifting weights and reading books. By the way, we're gonna, we will be talking a lot about Zlatan's books, so we're going to nail at this. I know you. Uh, it's a bit of a pet peeve that this is a book you read about three or four years ago when it came out in Swedish. 2011. It came, it came out and he released it as a, uh, in futuristic form as an iPad app. 
or I, iPad or iPhone. In Swedish, though, at the time. No, in, in English. It, it, the English translation was pu- published simultaneously, but essentially this year it was just released in paperback. So that's why, like in September or something, there was a, there was a sort of, all the quotes came up again. It was yeah. like, oh my God, look what he says about Guardiola. And you're thinking, he did say this two years ago, but maybe that's too long ago for people. Do to you do. get how much of a hipster you sound? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, if you... Well, like I, I, I was reading newspapers in 2011. You weren't reading newspapers. You just said you weren't. You were reading an iPhone app. <laughs> oh, oh, sorry. No, no, I meant, I meant when, he, when the quotes came out, you know, they, they always focus on, in the Zlatan book, his episode where he moves to Barcelona and uh, he's talking about Guardiola scratching his bald head and there's the kid, the assassin you of my dream coward. and all this. You, have, you no have no balls, yeah. Um, uh, and those, those quotes were so good that they made headlines um, That shows twice. how easily we forget yeah, massive headlines that in 2011 are forgotten about <laughs> by 2013. Okay, let's start getting into Malik. Your top five, first of all, and I think what we'll do is five to one or one to five. I'll I'll five to one them straight away, and okay. then we can go to reach them. So number five, we've got TikTok Ten by Jerry Duffy. Number four, Mugsy, My Story by Owen Mulligan. Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh. Number three, number two, The Fairy Tale in New York by Paul Fitzpatrick. And number one is I am Zlatan Ibrahimovic. So we'll get to that later on. But we'll start with your number five there. Not one I'm particularly familiar with. I have to say it's escaped me. Jerry Duffy, TikTok Yeah, 10. TikTok 10. Now, uh, this, you, you know, Jerry Duffy is, people might be a bit familiar with him. He, uh, a couple of years ago, wrote a book where he ran about running 32 marathons in 32 days. Who in dares 32, runs. Who in dares runs, yeah. yes. Uh, and he ro- ran a marathon in 32 consecutive days in every county in Ireland. Uh he then, in 2000, summer 2012, he won the DECA Ironman competition over in England, uh, where every, for 10 consecutive days, you start with a 2.4-mile swim, 116-mile cycle, and then a marathon uh, over the course of a day. I believe that's an do, Ironman triathlon in itself. And you yes, do 10 of those and you do 10 of those consecutive days. Yeah, the, the full title, I think, is the DECA Enduro Man Iron, Distan- Iron Distance Triathlon Challenge. And these people really know how to name <laughs> an event. I'll give them that. Um, need a lot and, of energy gels for and that the And the thing is with the book, like... Uh, you know, he he. It wouldn't be the best written book that is around at all, um, but it is thoroughly compelling when you get into the meat of it. When you get about fifty pages in, and the competition starts, and you just realise the sort of the both physical and mental uh, depreciation that happens with every passing day, it is completely stunning to read. I've read some of these books, and what these types of books, yeah. these endurance athletes, and I find sometimes they don't really get to the heart of the question that most people would ask, which is, why? why? This yeah. is absolutely insane. Because it's what they do, yeah. ultimately they do regularly, it becomes almost normalised. He does this a bit better, actually, than, than and I, 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 t- I know exactly what you're talking about. He does this a little bit better than that because he does use and has used this and his 32 marathons for his broader sort of self-discovery I, I mean I, I don't know this for sure but I would imagine that he is doing an awful lot of uh, motivational speaking at the minute because that is he, he does talk in the book about how he was once totally fearful of talking to uh, a crowd full of people and his life now just seems to be setting himself challenges and meeting them and it, it's there's it an is insight. There is an insight there number four yeah. Muggsy my story is an insight into Owen Mulligan's life Great there really football. is uh I I literally read this over last weekend, um, and it is completely enjoyable. Uh, again, you know, we're not 
talking about high literature here. Earl Bannon uh, ghostwrote it. She has captured his voice perfectly. So much to the point where there are a, a lot of Tyronisms in it that I don't know if people down the country will quite a glossary get straight away. We're waiting for the English translation of this one, Harry. <laughs> it's a little bit. Right. But it, there's great stories in it, an awful lot of stories told against himself, an awful lot of stories about his messing, his drinking, all the best story in it about how on the international rules trip in 06, he just treated it as a piss-up uh, and got confronted like by Sean Marty Lockhart at one point and got the head taken off him. But he roomed with Brian Doher because Doher was basically told, you keep an eye on him. And Doher by the end of the week was going, I need to get back to Tyrone because I'm in charge of animals back there and they're far easier to take care of. Than <laughs> the vet, of course, Brian yeah. Doher, yeah. But I would say that in a situation like that where Muggsy is a, you know, one of these GA characters yes. and the book of the life of these people is often a very sanitised version where, totally, where yeah. you know, the, the main part of the book is, oh, you know, I have this reputation and, yeah. you know, it's totally undeserved. I, the one thing I would say about this book is that, you know, he's come out and said, you know, maybe the stories are a little exaggerated that people have heard. Yeah. But the book does tell the story of the guy being a bit of a lunatic. Oh, totally. And that's, and like, that's the good thing about well, it. Well, he does it. He does kind of go, yeah, look, the amount of stories I've heard about myself are mad, but wait till you hear these stories yeah, that yeah. are actually the truth. There are, there are, there are different stories that <laughs> yeah. are equally mad, equally that paint me in equally a bad life. Yeah, you yeah. do sometimes get that from sports people. Their, their whole book is set out to show that they aren't what they're yeah. made out to be. Oftentimes yeah. they are, and that comes across Well, this the isn't that. So this, this doesn't is, do that. This, this, is, is, this, is, this is, I'm an Egypt, sort of. I'm also a very good footballer, and here's how I was both of those things for simultaneously. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's the that's the great thing about yeah. that. Yeah. Number three, Seven Deadly Sins by David Walsh. Yeah, not to come across too much like Ken Early, but this strictly didn't come out this year either. Mm. Uh, it was out like the week before Christmas last year. Um, but it like it it's the sports book of the year in Ireland. It won that in the Irish Book Awards there uh, two weeks ago. Um, I think broadly anybody listening to this podcast is probably aware of what the story is. It's David Walsh's um, pursuit of Lance Armstrong um, over however long it was, 13 years, maybe even, like, he interviewed him first in during the 93 tour. Yeah. Uh, and so it goes all the way back through that and, and how that developed over the years. I enjoyed it. Now, I enjoyed it for... Lance Armstrong uh, says he's annoyed by the way certain people have capitalised on what's happened to him. That's, that's probably fair enough. Uh, I enjoyed the book for from a journalism point of view, from the idea of, um, you know, looking after a story and then going after it and after it and after it, however many obstacles are put in your way. And that's, that. I don't know if, if the sort of the man in the street who, who maybe doesn't give a toss about sport journalism would is would be as interested in it as I was now. But uh, but for me, uh, that's what I enjoyed. I do understand your point, Ken. Again, it is Lance, well, it's Armstrong. Lance Armstrong's point. Yeah, sorry, Lance Armstrong's point, Ken, but... If I was talking to Lance Armstrong now, I would put it th- to him that he capitalised quite a lot on other people's misfortunes right through his career. But he caused some of those misfortunes that he then capitalised upon. But in terms of the the basic point that he's making there, and I'm assuming David Walsh is one of the people he's referring to. He didn't name him by name. There is an element of I told you so about this book. Yeah. And I don't know. Well, well, he has said that David Walsh is on a victory tour. Right, yeah. yeah. And yeah. there is an element of that. And I don't know how comfortable necessarily, uh, particularly uh, Irish people are with... In a way, I don't know. I, the the main point about this book that I find is that I compared it to, to from Lance to Landis, which is the one that he wrote a number mm. of years ago, which was in the middle of the yeah. entire thing. It was it was one of those books 
one of the few books that I've ever read that have actually convinced me of something that wasn't popularly believed. Yeah. Most people at that time still felt that Lance Armstrong was doing cleaner, certainly a lot of people. And this is one of those, I, I didn't necessarily, I didn't think that was the case, but I read this book and you couldn't but be convinced yeah. that David Walsh's argument was totally cogent and totally coherent. And subsequently, the USADA review came out used a lot of the material that was in David Walsh's book and fleshed it out a little bit. This one, Seven Deadly Sins, might actually date a little bit better in that it's more rounded just by dint of the fact that it's all been solved now. Yeah, exactly. So maybe like this is the one in 10 years that people will look back on and read again. But the more, way more important one was from Lance Landis because that was when he was actually doing that journalism, whereas Seven Deadly Sins... Absolutely. Well, this is a different story. Did, yeah. This is a different story. This is his story. And like he goes into a bit of his own motivation here where... Lance said something about his kid, uh, who, who, as as David puts it, his son John died off his bike, uh, cycling uh, into their home in uh, in Waterford at the time. Where I can't remember where it was. Yeah. But um, uh, I have absolutely no problem whatsoever with David Walsh taking a victory lap <laughs> and writing about it and telling us the story of his. Of his pursuits and that's probably of this great story. I, I have be, no trouble with that. People would be interested in what's new about this book, and I, that's what's new. Really, oh, that's it's David Walsh's motivation. It's David Walsh's story. It's yeah, not the Lance, not the Lance Armstrong, Armstrong story, story yeah. necessarily. Yep. Number two, the fairy tale in New York by Paul Fitzpatrick. This, if anything, uh, some every year you, around the sort of middle of the summer, you get a, a sense of what books are coming out. You get a sense of what. Uh, big names are doing books this year. You know, Ronan O'Gara and Johnny Sexton were doing ones this year. Um, DJ Carey, a few others. Very often a book like this takes complete uh, finding. And I came across this book with no uh, no great hopes for it. It's the story of the Polo Grounds final in 1947, Cavan versus Kerry. It's written by Paul Fitzpatrick, who's the sports editor of the Anglo-Celt newspaper in Cavan. And it is a, just a complete joy and a completely unexpected joy. It is uh, all every, it, it's told from the Cavan perspective. It's not done like, say, Kings of September was, which yeah. was take the Kerry players and the Offaly players and tie them all together. This is, this is the Cavan side of the story. Mm. Um, and that's my one problem with it. I would have, it, w- it would really have, have been a knockout if he'd taken another year with it and done the Kerry side and weaved them all together. But that's my only real quibble with it. What it is, is taking each one of these characters, told their life story, told the, the story of a man that I had never heard of, who's Canon Hamilton, who yeah. was the, the president of the Munster Council or, or the head of the Munster Council for like 20 odd years, who was the only man in Ireland who could get this done. Like when you think about it, Taking the All-Ireland football final out of the country and putting it in New York would be an amazing thing to do today, and I don't know that that they'd get away with it. But to do it in 1947, when there was nothing else in the country, when there was no other big sporting events, there was no Heineken Cup, there was no, you know... The All-Ireland football final was was the the only show. And the details, the, the research and details in this are... Extraordinary. Yeah, I, I think it's a, I was thinking about it as well because that that, that idea that there, it's only from the Cavan angle. I was thinking about that as well, and it is a pity in some ways, but in other ways, the Kerry the 1947 Kerry team that lost the Ireland final in the Polo Grounds is a little bit of a footnote in some respects Fair to enough. the Kerry football point, story. Yeah. Whereas the Cavan team that won the only Ireland final ever played mm. outside of Ireland 
and you know they've whatever I think they won two more since, and that was and that's it. Yeah, um, they are the heroes, the absolute yes. I, uh, icons of Cavan. Yeah. Of Cavan, yeah. Has yeah, enough been written about Kerry? Yeah, no, stage, no, no, absolutely. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I, I do take the point. I mean, it, uh, as, but but as a sort of a social history of Cavan alone, it's an amazing. Oh, I, I, and of the country as well. Yeah, like, really, really. There's good. a brilliant, brilliant stuff early on where they talk about the the great snow of early that year. Yeah. Where like like it was one of the one of the biggest snows in the in Irish history, and like for uh, for months uh, they were waiting on thaws, and there was like uh, herds and herds of sheep all across the country were found dead. Like three months later, it, it is an incredible, yeah. incredibly detailed. Yeah, no, I really liked it as well. There was one story uh, as well, and it, the research I have to say this is an unbelievably well researched mm. book because it goes beyond. You know the Anglo Celt clippings from that exactly, week and yeah. the Kerryman clippings. It's actually there's real first person research yeah. done here. You know, but there's a story here from the Magnet Cinema in Cavan Town, uh, which was packed the, the night the Ireland. So the Ireland fo- football final was played at ten o'clock Irish time, ten mm. p.m. Irish time, and the projectionist uh, was listening to the match in his hut, right? And obviously he was unable to beam pictures from New York, so he was improvising by. Uh, with every score, he made up a new slide and superimposed it onto the film. So this is how hundreds of people in yeah. Cavan actually watched the game. That they would they, a, a, a slide would go up for every single score, and then at the end of the game, they like pour out onto the streets and celebrate. It's a really, really sounds good great. Book. Yeah. Fair play, Fairy Tale New York with Paul Fitzpatrick. The two of you are agreed in that one. Number one, your number one is I am Zlatan Ibrahimovic, which we'll get to because it's part yes. of our top five as well. Maliki, second captain's top five. Number five, Red or Dead by David Peace. Yeah. Number four, The Fairy Tale of New York by Paul Fitzpatrick, as discussed. Number three, The Rocky Road, Eamon Dunfeet. Number two, David Epstein's The Sports Gene. And number one, I am Zlatan Ibrahimovic. This Ooh. hasn't been prearranged, but we have agreed with Maliki, so we're unanimous. Now, let's start at number five there, Ken, Red or Dead by David Peace, who we interviewed on this show. He told us a lot of people will not like my book. He said, I'm fu- I fully believe most people will hate the book. Oh, well, then it went even further. <laughs> he, was, he was right, it turned out. Most people did hate it. Um, and, you know, this is a sort of 700-page novel about Bill Shankly, which people who read it or people who reviewed it seemed to feel took almost as much work to read as it took Liverpool to, uh, <laughs> Shankly to build Liverpool with his own hands. <laughs> so, you know, that, that, it, the reception of it wasn't great. I mean, especially when you consider to, the, to compare it to the um, uh, previous United. book, The Damned United, which was a huge success. Um, and we sort of set the table for this. Like when 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 I heard that David Peace was doing a Bill Shankly novel, I was absolutely let's let's do this. Yeah, uh, and I got to say the reviews completely put me off. Yeah. So why is it in our top five? Because I liked it. And that's, and that's the kind of power he wheels. <laughs> well, I had the same uh, reaction as a lot of the people who reviewed it when I was reading the first hundred and two hundred pages. But I think the difference between me and them is that I read it all the way to the end. Mm. I mean, I don't want to impugn anyone's professionals. You, I mean, are, I'm not, you are the Jerry Duffy. You just I'm worked not, that bit harder. I'm yeah. not naming any names, but I did finish What was good it. about it, though? What did, you, what did you end up liking about it? Well, because it's an attempt to tell the story of Bill Shankly in an innovative way. I mean, obviously, you don't often find sports stories told in novel form. It just doesn't, hasn't really happened much. People find it difficult to do. Kind of the whole idea of a sporting event is sort of not exactly the opposite of a novel. Or or a, or or a kind of constructed story. I mean, it's a story that kind of happens before everyone's eyes. You know, it's not like a, something that people make up. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, so when you when, when you do see someone trying to tell a story in that way, I fi- I always find it kind of interesting. Now I don't know to what extent maybe he was 
he was bruised a bit by what happened after the Diamond United, where he, he, you know, had various people, John Giles, for instance, threatening legal action and wanting things changed, and people complaining about his portrayal of certain people who were still alive and so on. Um, you know, because certainly in this book, there's none of the kind of darkness of the of the Damned United, where Clough is this paranoid, basically alcoholic figure. That's what sur- I like. Surrounded, the, I like the darkness was, about the Damned United. It was great, but for instance, John Giles would dispute would dispute <laughs> that the atmosphere at Leeds United was anything like that. He had a lot of respect for Brian Clough, uh, you know, and so on. So, it, but uh, so where was I? Essentially to try and get across the idea of what it was that Bill Shankly actually did. And I think that the style that he uses in the book, which is this kind of obsessive repetition of... keep, And that's the thing that annoyed people when they were reading it. They're like, oh, this is just page after page of the same stuff over and over. But the point that he's making is that that's exactly what the achievement of Bill Shankly consists in. That That's, that's what he did every day for 15 years, in and out of that uh, place, training, doing the same things you know, doing the same things over and over and over and over again and trying to just try to get better every every single time. You know, I mean, this is something, this is not something that he kind of spells out, but this is what, this is what it means. You know, mm-hmm. when you when you read it all, this, oh, I, I kind of see. And then there's the fact that uh, there's this big turning point in it, which isn't a spoiler to say that Bill Shankly retires. I mean, everybody knows that he retired and then almost immediately thought, Hmm, I'm not sure if I actually should have retired then. And so then what you've got is this grinding deceleration of his life from every day, which was this really full life of training and working and, you know, full of people and full of stuff to do. And suddenly it's just him there. And, you know, there's six pages of him washing his car, you know, applying the same obsessive, rigorous attention to detail as he washes every inch of that car. It might, be, it might be five pages, but, that, but that's the point. You really, it kind of drives home the sort of pathos of his situation. You know, he's there, he washes the dishes and cleans the oven. And this is what he's doing now. You know, he, he I can't... Think, I think there are, there are other novels have done this before. Like, I read uh, The Museum of Innocence by, by uh, Orhan Pamuk, right? Which is it, it very similar in that it's all... It's very stylized, and you're kind of getting frustrated as you read it. But then at the end of the book, you realise, right, okay... If you look at it in its totality, it actually makes sense. It, there's an actual reason why the book is written in the style in which it's written. And once you get to the end of it, you say, right, okay, I can see what he was trying to do there. And as a result, you know, your 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 uh, your summation of it is, is radically different at the end to what it is as you're yeah, reading it. Yeah, and I, I felt really after reading this, I had a better understanding of Bill Shankly. That's just an imagined character that David Peace has invented. I mean, he does point that out. You know, this is an invention. But I kind of felt like I, I had, uh, I understood him better. So what we're saying is, if you're thinking of buying this as a present for somebody... Have patience. Make sure they have patience. Yeah. You don't have to have any patience. You just go and pay your money. <laughs> make sure that they're willing to work hard on the book. Number four is The Fairy Tale in New York by Paul Fitzpatrick. We've already talked about it. Number three, The Rocky Road, Eamon Dunphy, mm. which I thought was... Uh, I thought it was the best Irish sports book this year. I thought it was really good. Well, that and Seven Deadly Sins I quite enjoyed as well. But one striking element of The Rocky Road is that he doesn't give all of himself in a, in a personal capacity. He touches on certain things. And it struck me reading the book that he one of the most amazing scenes was the final scene where it's 1990. He's just after getting all this public abuse after the World Cup. He 
decides to flee the country, gets on a boat. People have heard it at this stage. There's a small act of kindness by somebody in the boat who, working there, gives him his own little table away from the crowds. They're all staring at him and making him feel uncomfortable. And he just breaks down because he feels he's brought a lot of pain to his family, to his kids and all this. But that, there are only a few glimpses like that. And that's the angle that Paul Kimmage took. I don't know if you guys read the yeah. Sunday Independent read piece at the Sunday. weekend, which is very, very interesting. Kimmage essentially is, at one stage, apologises to Dunphy. He goes, look, I just try to get inside people's heads. And Dunphy says, yeah, I know that, I understand, and you can't get that with me. Um, which was quite, was quite a, the article itself was very interesting in terms of this tussle of Kimmich trying to, and I think succeeding in getting something out of Eamon Dunphy. But I don't know what your, what your thoughts on that. Does the book suffer for that? Or is it better for the fact that he doesn't dwell too much? It's not a warts and all personal style autobiography, Ken. It's more somebody heavily researching like the story of the man in the world about what happens outside. As opposed to what's going on always in his head. Yeah, um, well, that is kind of what it is. Yeah, I mean, Eamon Dunphy's, uh, the reason that he gave was that he wanted to respect the privacy of his, um, you know, family members, his, uh, and so on. And I don't know, maybe if you if you have lived a very public life, it becomes quite important to keep something back for yourself. You know, you don't necessarily want everything out there. And maybe also you have to, I mean, <laughs> you know, there's this sort of idea that there is a, an, an essential being inside of all of us you know there's a there's a truth in there if only we're willing to speak it what if there isn't there's you know there's there may not be there's just the collection well of- even in the piece with Kimmich both at the start and the end there are, are a couple of moments where Kimmich describes a very vulnerable type of a, a, a worrying fidgety type of Eamon Dunphy which isn't what you see on tv it's not what you've heard on the radio it's not what you see in print at one stage early on he physically asked Simon Dunphy to hold a mirror to himself. Around that same time, there's a voicemail arrives on his phone, and one of those events seems to unsettle Dunphy, according to Kimmage. Later on, he admits to Kimmage that while he's waiting for a driver uh, who's supposed to be meeting him outside this shopping centre, wherever this cafe where he stopped at on the way up to Belfast, I think it is, for a book signing, he suddenly starts freaking out and worrying how is the driver going to find his way back to the car and how are we going to get any further? This, this vulnerable, this anxious kind of Eamon Dunphy, isn't there? Well, I mean, there's quite a lot about anxiety, I would have thought, in the book itself, Mm. um, particularly economic insecurity um, or uncertainty about, you know, what he's going to do, how he's going to provide for his family. You know, that's, it's not Mm. like that's left out. It's in there. Um, You know, in terms of being nervous, I don't know. Paul Gimmage used the phrase sucks on the nicotine. He's very anti-smoking, Paul Gimmage. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if he maybe reads a little bit too much into it when someone smokes a cigarette. You know, I must say, I haven't gotten around to the book yet, uh, and I certainly will read it. Uh, but what, what I have wondered, and maybe you can tell me, um, you say there, Owen, that, that 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 side of him you never really see on TV, you never see in print, you never see. I kind of think that over the last few years, the more interviews he has done... Even like the silly interviews on Saturday night with Miriam O'Callaghan and that kind of stuff. Uh, And you did a great interview with him a couple of weeks ago. I think that side of him has been coming out an awful lot. Do you? Yeah. I really do. Um, And now maybe that's only because I've met him a few times professionally and personally. And people, you know, when you meet him, ask you, well, what was the He's an absolute, he's He's a complete gentleman. A a, a gentle person, really, in the way that he deals with people one on one. And so I. I don't know. Sorry, the the, the question I was going to ask is, is, like, did you read anything in the book that you weren't previously aware of or that you didn't, that were, were that you were enlightened yeah. about him that you didn't already Very know? Very much his 
what I found the most interesting with the angle that we focused on in that interview on this show was his, and as Ken says there, his struggles to work out how he's going to provide for his family after his football career ended and subsequently his move into journalism. There's a lot of, maybe it's, I don't know, working in media again. I hope it's of interest to people who aren't involved. I think it is. Mm. It's an underlying thing that some people well, get to a certain stage of life. He's an inherently interesting guy. Yeah, I, I think that was yeah. fascinating. There's a lot of good stories in it, you know. Yeah, a lot of good stories. But this, I mean, he's talking about, uh, it's, it's these kind of things that you come up against um, as a journalist, how to all of these sort of dilemmas that you're confronted with. I mean, not just the difficulty of, well, at that time it seemed to be extremely difficult to get into, but what you actually do once you have the job. You know, what's what's worthy of your attention and what isn't? What's a, what, what's a legitimate criticism and what's a vicious, you know, personal yeah. attack? Um, how you differentiate between... Okay, you've, on one hand, you've got to cultivate sources. On the other hand, you've got to actually blab Hammer secret information. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where do you, you know, how, how do you kind of settle that down? Because often those those are conflicting kind of goals. And he sort of uh, goes through these, it's not like it's, you know, he's just philosophizing about the nature of journalism, you know, but he's sort of illustrating these kind of dilemmas through what I found to be a really uh, interesting uh, story of you know the, what journalism was like in Dublin in the yeah. late seventies and eighties, and, and I think the fact that he's such a personable guy means that you know the line moves all the time between oh he's a mate you know he's a decent skin yeah uh, you know and the, that that line is moving and it, maybe if he writes the book in ten years time the people who were decent skin <laughs> yeah things might, things might have changed I'm know, sure this is a snapshot of of some vaguely remembered he does say in the foreword. You know, my memory isn't great. John Giles is a better memory. I've asked him a lot and, and several other people, you know, I've asked, so I'm sure people might dispute some of this and the details. I do love the fact that the second volume is going to be called Wrong About Everything. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, I, hope second... his, I hope he sticks <laughs> yeah. by his guns and that is the, that is the title. Until the publisher gets a hold of it and says, mm. <laughs> The Sports Gene by David Epstein is number two, Ken. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a really good book, The Sports Gene. Well, it's a study of how athletic performance is influenced by genetics, really. There yeah. have been some of these types of books in recent years. Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, that's not specifically about that, but there yeah. is that element to it. Matthew Syed's Bounce is another one. This is saying the opposite to all those all books. All those books, right. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of demolishing them, actually. And uh, essentially what it's saying is that, you know that thing you, you may have heard about 10,000 hours of practice being enough to elevate you to elite level and pretty much anything? That's completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, maybe it will be, but more than likely, it uh, depends on whether you're cut out for it. Mm. And we're not going to win an Olympic gold medal in the marathon because of our fat ankles. Well, not now. No, yeah. you know, but but I mean, when you say one of the questions in the book is, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, obviously it's it's concerned with sport uh, primarily, but I mean, every distance in running from 100 meters to the marathon is dominated by athletes of African ancestry. This is a controversial question. People have all kinds of explanations for it. This is quite a serious attempt to tackle, amongst others, that question. I mean, there was something that came up earlier in this chat about the why do these triathletes do it? You know, why do extreme triathletes do this insane thing? Well, in the sports scene, <laughs> uh, there, there is almost an explanation for that. Well, not exactly an explanation, but uh, a kind of a look at... I mean, essentially, it, it talks about a, a woman called Pam Reed, I think her name is, who's, who's one of these uh, extreme endurance athletes, you know, who essentially can't, it's not that she can't sit still, but that if she does, it makes her sick. She needs to run three hours a day 
just to feel comfortable. Really? Yeah. That's just, yeah. <laughs> Whereas if, if I ran three hours a day, it would kill me. You know what I mean? It would, it, I would have to go to hospital. Not if you built up to it slowly. No, even if I did over, you know, it, it, I'm, just not, I'm just not cut out that way. Um, I think the explanation in the book has something to do with the dopamine system in the brain. Um, people who have a muted dopamine system are more likely to engage in behaviors which uh, causes the uh, dopamine production to be stimulated, such as exercise um, or uh, taking drugs. For instance, um, whereas people with a with a less muted dopamine system don't feel the need to do those things because they naturally have feelings of euphoria happening in their everyday lives. I don't want to get too into the details of that because that's only a very minor uh, area of the book. But I think it's a really uh, it's a really well put together book and quite an important one. Uh, yeah, and it's again, it's a, it's a book that changes how you look at you know what you're watching when you watch sport literally looking at I, I was reading it around the time of the world championships yeah. uh, athletics championships in Moscow and I was thinking because he talks a lot about different body types and the, the advantages of different body types in different sports you know why um, long distance runners are built a certain way you know why high jumpers are built a certain way or what what, what kind of physical equipment you need to excel in various disciplines you know swimming so on and so forth and and having read this, I was kind of watching every athlete in that uh, <laughs> in that thing, you know, through this kind of prism, you know, thinking, yeah, I, I think it's really, really, really good. Number one, according to all four of us here. Unanimous. I am Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Maliki, back over to you to explain why you have it as your top book this year. Um, I just thought that it was unlike almost every other sportsman's autobiography I'd ever read. And by God, I've read a lot of them, and I'd say we've read a lot of them around this table. Um, Zlatan's glory is all Zlatan is interested in talking about. And I have to say, by the end, it got a wee bit wearing. Um, but I just loved the... The whoever uh, I, I don't know the the ghostwriter. The ghostwriter is David Lagerkrantz, and I think he is. If if the key to ghostwriting is the subject's voice coming yeah. across, as opposed yeah, to the, the author's way. voice, yeah. But yeah. this is what Lagerkrantz is doing. Here. It's incredible. Absolutely, like just, or else Lagerkrantz is an egomaniac <laughs> lunatic, <laughs> the greatest writer Sweden has ever produced. No, no, Sometimes no. you just have to let David Lagerkrantz smash some stuff. No, yeah. well, well, either that or he's the greatest sycophant in the world, and, <laughs> and all yeah. he loves is Zlatan. Um, no, like all this book is about is how great Zlatan Ibrahimovic thinks Zlatan Ibrahimovic is, and it's his story told through that prism. And it starts off with um, a completely bracing dozen pages on <laughs> on what he thinks of Pep Guardiola <laughs> and what a coward he thinks he is. And through it all, even the Barcelona stuff, where, where he's forever giving out about, you know... Um, all these players play like they're school kids. They're they're they are these great players, and yet they play like school kids. Why do they not? Why do they not think that they are as great? Why do they not do what I do? Mm. And then, but but he says, ah, but okay, Messi is very good, so I can understand that. It's full, completely full of contradictions. And if it was a guy like we've seen in in other autobiographies where there are contra- contradictions, the 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 subject 
almost tries to smooth them out a little bit. Yes. You know, yeah. they try to go, well, with all due respect, or with, obviously, I didn't want to, I don't want to say this about this guy or this about this guy. Zlatan says completely contradictory things over the course of three or four pages and doesn't care. Yeah. Just goes, this is me. Do what you like. Sorry, Andrew. No, I was just going to make the point that, that that's true. And what I love about this book, there's, I was flicking through it again last night just to try to pick out a story that encapsulates And there are so many. That yeah. joke I made about smashing things up, he actually says that at one stage, he's in, he could be playing for AC Milan at this stage, whoever it is, and he's in a bad mood after a game and he's in the dressing room kicking the hell out of whatever's available. And Capello, wherever it might be, comes into him and asks, I don't know, Capello management, Juventus, I think, but comes in and tries to calm him down. And Zlatan's line there is, in the book, sometimes you need to let me just smash stuff up. Yeah. So there are loads of those kind of things, but I think there's a really good one. He's at the Swedish Sports Person of the Year Award and he's nominated, not expecting to win necessarily because it usually goes to a skier or somebody from an individual sport. And he bumps into Martin Dallin at this award, yeah. the former brilliant footballer for mm. Sweden in the 90s. And Dallin says to him, and this sounds to me like quite innocuous banter, but Zlatan takes it quite personally. Dallin says to him, what are you doing here? Zlatan says, I'm, I'm nominated. Why, why would I not be here? And Dallin goes, oh, right, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, and then Zlatan says, you know, I'm nominated. You, 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 sorry, Dallin himself says, I actually won one. Uh, at one point, you know that? And Zlatan goes, yes, as part of a team, I'm nominated as an individual. So does this, <laughs> but that's fine. Th- that, this is all before the awards. Then he sits down and he says immediately after this conversation, he went from not really caring that much to this being just the, the most important thing yeah, in his life. Yeah. Uh, this would be his acceptance because he always felt that an outsider being born of a Bosnian, uh, Bosnian-Croatian yeah. parents, uh, suddenly this is his chance to be accepted by all of Sweden and people like Martin Dallin, yeah. whoever it might be. He wins the award on the way up to the to collect it, strolls by Dallin, whispers to him, pardon me, Martin, I've got to go up and collect my award. <laughs> <laughs> so, but this has got everything in it that you want, the totally. feeling of outsider, the totally. quite endearing, there's something yeah. endearing about it, but the incredible arrogance that he needs to just get the last word but, in on Martin Dallin. His arrogance and sort of bombast is also a, kind of a deliberate strategy by him. I mean, and he talks about it quite openly, like in a couple of occasions in the book, that he's essentially based it on Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And his... Uh, and Muhammad Ali based it on Gorgeous George. You know, Muhammad Ali talked about it before. Two, he's two steps from Gorgeous George. Gorgeous George, you know. Uh, a wrestler, yeah. He, this wrestler who, who Ali saw. Yeah. And, and he was just boasting and bragging and, and making these crazy claims and saying, oh, you know, I'll cut my hair off if this guy beats me, but he'll never beat me. I'm so pretty. And Ali was thinking, this is amazing. Look, people love this man. Yeah. And Gorgeous and George paying to see him talked to him. Look at yeah, him, yeah. you know, uh, mm. all this money coming in. Gorgeous George said to Ali something like... Uh, you know, people are going to pay you a lot of money to see you get your mouth shut. So, uh, was it keep on bragging, keep on sassing, and always be outrageous? <laughs> <laughs> and, so Ali's like, okay, and we all know what happened there. But but Zlatan seemed to do exactly the same thing. Or his entire career has been about this sort of process of getting noticed yeah. or winning I recognition. Think, I think you said an interesting word there, though, that. This would just be very annoying mm. if he wasn't endearing. And there <laughs> is something terribly, terribly endearing about the character of Zlatan in this book. Maybe not the guy. I like none of us know the guy. Maybe he. he I think it's because. Like that, but, yeah. I, but I said, sorry, Ken, but especially when he talks about his wife, who is 10 years older than him, who plainly 
is the sort of one bit of solidity in his life. Maybe the one person in his life that he's in any way scared of. Because <laughs> <laughs> he calls her a super deluxe uh, business bitch or something like that. Yeah. Because uh, that's the way she dresses up. And he, he, no, genuinely. <laughs> that's all one word. It's all, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a little pet thing. It, it is a pet thing that they have. But, yeah. but, but when he talks about her, you kind of go, all right, so, so the, the, there is... If this guy was just swanking around being a knob all the time, you wouldn't you wouldn't read. No, but even his pursuit of her, just remember, even his yeah. pursuit of her is hilarious. He's trying to. He, she's got this amazing black convertible, whatever yeah. sports car, and he at, at that time has just bought the top of the range Mercedes. He's told it's the only one in Sweden. You won't see another one. He drives around. What's the first car he sees around the corner? Another one, the yeah. same as his. So he goes berserk, <laughs> sells it, goes, gives the Mercedes back, then goes and gets a Ferrari, which he can't afford at that point. Yeah. So then he can impress this woman by driving up with his Ferrari. Yeah. Even I don't know. Is that endearing? Is of course that, it is. But he also well, it's endearing because we get to read a book about it. We don't have to hang out with him. I mean, you know, he doesn't sound like the sort of guy that you know. Well, I mean, maybe, in you know, in, in ways, maybe he is just that entertaining that you would like the guy. But I he, would he, love he to hang around with yeah, Saturday. He, he, he also admits right. his right, own actually, yeah. sort of vulnerabilities a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stuff about his childhood, which you know sounds quite difficult. Really? You know, coming yeah, in, finding incredible. his father passed out with booze on the floor. He doesn't know what's wrong with him. You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, being looked down on by all the snobby Swedes, you know, because yeah. he was a, a brown kid from the ghetto, I think is how he puts it. And they were all called Anderson. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, his, his mother, you know, his mother was thrashing with a wooden spoon. He ends up buying her a three pack of wooden spoons for Christmas, I think is a joke, which she doesn't find funny, you know. <laughs> no. And I actually feel everyone's ganging up. At every point, you know, he, he's, he's sort of boasting and bragging about how amazing he is, but always trying to sort of prove himself. Like he has this vulnerability, which is kind of what makes it palatable in a way so it's really a story of this vulnerable confused lonely kid who happens just happens to be a superhero alright some honourable mentions that we haven't been able to squeeze into our top 5 Fear and Loathing in La Liga by Sid Lowe was brilliant just finished that in the last few days Stillness and Speed My Story by Dennis Bergkamp and David Winner Ken you've read that and you absolutely love it so that yes, ties in with the European football books and one we're looking forward to reading we're going to be speaking to Graham Hunter about his new book quite soon so I can't really recommend it yet because I haven't read it but I, I would imagine it'll be uh, quite good and we'll chat to him in the next week or two. Spain, the inside story of La Roca's historic treble. That, yes. That's the newest one, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Um, By a man who was there. And a dishonourable mention, Ken, to Alex Ferguson, my autobiography. Oh, Alex Ferguson. Stinking out the No, but this is important. This, go- this is going to be bought by a lot of people as a gift for their Man- the Manchester United supporter in their lives. Well, it's going to put the Manchester United supporter in your life off Alex Ferguson. <laughs> Would that be a good or a bad thing? Is that bad? Uh, I, th- I, think it was, I think it was poor. I think it was... R- it was it was rushed out. A lot of it things were sloppy. wrong about it, yeah. yeah. I mean, that idea that it was rushed out as well, you know, you just really... I mean, he's, whatever he is, 73 years old. I mean, 71. 71, okay. Well, you know, take six months, take a year. People are still going to be interested in Alex yeah. Ferguson. Maliki? Ken had a great line, actually, in the review he did for The Times, where it just felt like one long ghosted column. Yeah. And that was it. It felt like he took a phone call that lasted maybe two and a half days and then just... He kept sort of drifting. Like, I mean, for instance, there's a chapter in it about Jose Mourinho. And you think, well, this might be interesting. You know, Ferguson saw some Mourinho. And the first couple of pages are about Jose Mourinho. Then he just rambles off, talk, starts talking about Nemanja Vidic going to Serbia. You know, you think, you're thinking, well, hang on a second. I mean, I can understand Ferguson maybe, you know, after a couple of glasses of wine, rambling off on a tangent, forgetting what he was talking about. But surely... The, you know, they, they could have brought him back to the subject <laughs> and got him to return again to that team which was threatening to become interesting just at the point when he appeared to forget the story that he was telling like Abe Simpson. We started this conversation <laughs> on a downer. We might as well finish it on a downer. <laughs> Maliki, thanks so much for coming in. Great Not stuff. At all. Cheers. 
I knew the place. Fluff, that he calls me Ravi, didn't know them. He said to me, what can you do that the boss hasn't done? You, the boss. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. But there's no way to win it better. Why not? Only, no, 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 no. But that's the only hope I've got. We've only, only lost four matches. Then, but that, well, I can only lose three. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. Fluff, that he calls me Ravi. Good luck. Now that may, that might be you know aiming for utopia, and it might be, might mean being a little bit stupid, but that is the way I am. I'm a little bit stupid regarding this type of thing. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. One more quick run through those top fives then. TikTok ten by Jerry Duffy. So our emailer Jack. From the beginning of the show, I'll be happy mm-hmm. with that one. Yeah, it's his favourite book of the year. At number four, Muggsy, My Story. Number three, Seven Deadly Sins. Number two, The Fairy Tale in New York. And number one, I'm Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Second captain's top five, Red or Dead, said Ken. Again, huge commitment required. Mm-hmm. Sounds kind of tough work, but Ken has it in there. Number four, The Fairy Tale in New York. Three, The Rocky Road, Eamon Dunphy. Two, The Sports Gene by David Epstein. And number one, also, I am Zlatan Ibrahimovic. So enjoy whichever ones of those you end up reading or buying as presents over Christmas right now. You could now. just, you know, buy the present, buy them as a present, but, you know, read it yourself. I mean, you know, that's, you could do that. It's I mean, you good. get the... You get the old Homer Simpson bowling ball from... Yeah, you, the get, the ball, you get the best of both worlds. Uh, good time to consider some of the all-time greats now and why we think of them as that. Keith Duggan, author of The Lifelong Season and House of Pain, among others, is ready to talk to us, as is Donald McRae, who has won the William Hill Award twice in the UK for In Black and White, the untold story of Jesse Owens and Joe Lewis and Dark Trade, Lost in Boxing. Lads, great to talk to you both about this. Keith, in, in thinking about it, you've had a chance to have a look at, again at some of your favourites of all time. Is there a common thread? Is there something in particular that draws you to the sports book? Um, n- not really. Um, possibly po- possibly from interest in the time period or a particular game, I'm more obviously a particular sport. I'm more, uh, more drawn to, to, to those books. Um, but you know, conversations of this nature—they're they're, kind of like pub conversations. And if you had it again tomorrow night, I'm <laughs> sure my my, my kind of my choice would would probably completely change. Um, but uh, you know, when I was thinking about it, I uh, I remembered a, a book that I'd read. Um, it's a good number of years ago now, and I've, I've subsequently given it away. Best of the Game by uh, by David Halberstam, and basically spent the season kind uh, of Blazers in uh, NBA team in 1979-80, um, and two years before that they'd become NBA champions with um, with the, the sort of their star player was a sort of a six foot nine, six foot ten stroke, uh, seven foot red haired kind of hippie character named Bill Walton. Um, so by the time the writer Halberstam came along to spend some time with them, um, they were kind of in decline and they were starting to fight and whatnot um, and uh, they just recruited a new player called Kermit Washington who was uh, he'd kind of um, he'd become notorious because he was involved in a brawl uh, in which he almost uh, killed um, another NBA player at the time called Rudy Tom Jonovich with a it, it was it was a sort of a an accidental punch but it completely destroyed um, Rudy Tom Jonovich 
space. Um, so he had all this kind of a strange mix of characters, and he just spent a year on, on, on the road with them. At a time when the NBA wasn't really that popular, um, C- uh, CBS were, co- were televising it, but they weren't really convinced that anybody wanted to watch it. It was just before the Larry Bird, uh, Magic Johnson era. So it was a really interesting time for the NBA. It was right before it started to explode, and it was still very kind of messy. Um, you know, Bill Walton, after he won the championship, disappeared and went sort of following the Graceful Dead around Europe for, uh, for, for, the, for the bones of the year and then came back. And he actually sat out the 78 season uh, because he wasn't happy with how his injuries had been uh, dealt with. And he, he sort of sat the entire season out uh, as a protest, which just wouldn't happen nowadays. So, uh, yeah, I remember that book and um, I thought I'd include it because it's it's. It's an example of a kind of book that is becoming, I think, more difficult to write, where um, a journalist or a writer gets really uh, open access to, uh, to, to, to a sports team. Yeah, and that's something that you, and judging by that story choice and also the books that you've chosen to write, Keith, am I, to give, uh, am I right to believe that that's the kind of angle, if possible, that you're more interested in than maybe your straightforward sports person's autobiography? Yeah, well, I do think. I mean, if if you're if you're going to spend time um, writing um, a book about a subject, I mean, much of much of much of the worthwhile stuff in sport happens. Uh, you know, it happens for, for the fans. You know, people can go along and see games, or they can watch games on TV, or horse racing, boxing, whatever it may be. But you know, if you if you, if you want to try and find out what sort of motivates people or, or or what's going on with them, maybe a little bit behind the scenes, I think that's a, that that's an ideal way of, uh, of 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 doing things. You know, you can just maybe present things in a slightly um, just from a slightly different perspective. Donald, you've done uh, many many brilliant sit down interviews with sports people, but you've only written one autobiography, I believe. That's Victoria Pendleton. Other than that, maybe you've gone down the route that, uh, particularly with the, uh, something the likes of Dark Trade, for example, which is an amazing look into the world of boxing. You've done something a bit more like what Keith describes. There is there a difference in in the way you would write one type of book, an autobiography, versus the way you would try to represent maybe an entire sport, as in Dark Trade. Uh, definitely. Um, I mean, I, I'm sort of pulled to, uh, much like Keith, I think, pulled to books that attempt to get beneath the surface. Um, you know, it's so easy to sort of see famous sporting people as icons and, and legends, but they are at their most interesting when they become human. And if you can get time with the sports person and sort of get to see and understand their moments of fear, their moments of defeat, as also as well as their moments of victory. Um, I think that's when the humanity um, of the person comes over, and that pulls me into a book. And also interested in books that um, perhaps can tell us what a sport can mean to a particular nation. So that's the obvious difference. If you're doing a book about just one person, um, I think that person can illuminate a sport and help explain it. But it's a, a much more obviously focused look. And I think autobiographies, I've shied away from doing them. Um, obviously, I worked with Vicky Pendleton, but in the past, I've always turned them down because I think publishers are keen for quite a sanitized um, book, and, and they like books to be done quickly on the back of a gold medal or something, which is not always the, the best time. Um, so I think there's a huge gulf between the kind of books perhaps Keith and I like and, and the, the bog-standard sporting autobiography. There are top-quality 
was sporting autobiographies too though Donald do you ever pick up maybe the Andre Agassi book or I don't know if you've read Tony Cascarino's book and do you ever think maybe I should write more autobiographies yeah I mean I think that's a, that's a good example that's that's a book that um, gets quite deep into Agassi's head and but Agassi I think was keen to to do that book in in that particular style and it clearly worked um, I think a lot of Sporting people are sometimes swayed by publishers saying, well, you can make a quick buck here if we get the book out in a matter of months. And something like Open, I think they spent a long, long time working on that book. And it shows. I think you need time to, to get deep beneath the surface. But yes, there are, there are many fantastic sporting autobiographies that I take that point. Paul McGrath would be another one that I could throw into that list as well with Vincent Hogan from a few years back. Are they... The point that both of you seem to be making is they'd be the exception to the rule, really. That the, but they they do exist. I think it's fair to say still good good yeah, autobiographies. Yeah, that, that's made sense. I mean, and it's not. I mean, I've nothing against. I've nothing against them at all. I just I'm not all that interested in reading them uh, by and large. But I do remember, for instance, um, when Donald Cusack wrote his biography a number of years ago. I think it was three years ago um, uh, with, with with Tom Humphries, and it was a very obviously a very. Um, honest a kind of his life not not just because he he um he he came out as being as being gay but just i think he was fairly honest on himself in terms of his uh his 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 flaws his shortcomings and what have you and i remember interviewing him for the for the Irish times after the bit came out and i you know i asked him you know why he felt compelled to, to reveal so much and he says well my understanding of an autobiography is that you know you tell about yourself and I was kind of thinking to myself, well, that's not the general understanding <laughs> when it comes to sports books, you know. But I mean, so absolutely, there are, you know, there there are uh, there are a number of, of terrific autobiographies out there. But um, you know, I I, I, I think as as some of them are are, are sort of um, they're, they're they're kind of written to a template. It seems then like access, time, and access are two of the keys, Keith. Is that what you found about reading and writing? That that's what you need to get under the skin. You talked about. At uh, the Halberson book, there's also a season on the brink by John Feinstein. I know another one of the ones that you're interested in, where he spent again probably a season with a famous uh, college basketball coach in the US. Those are the kind of those are the kind of books that maybe I don't know if they are still being written or not, but that's what an author needs. He needs almost unlimited. Well, not almost. He needs unlimited access and he needs time to craft it. Yeah, I do. I, I suppose ideally both. Um... You know, if, if 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 you're not getting if if you're not getting the access, uh, your your you know your job's going to be um, a lot more difficult. I mean, you mentioned that John Feinstein book as well, where he, he spent um, I think he spent six full months out in Indiana with uh, with 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 um, Bobby Knight and his college team there, and um, yeah, it was a it was it was a, a sensational book at the time, and I suppose it 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 sort of forms a sort of a blueprint for for future books of that nature. Um, but you know there there are other ways of of of, of doing it as well. There's um, um, you know there's there's a, a small book that that appeared back in I think the early seventies called The City Game by by Pete Axtown where he he just um, went around um, again this happens to be a basketball book but he went around um, the, the, the the sort of the playgrounds of of Harlem speaking with uh, really. Brilliant young basketball players of of that time who uh, who sort of never made it into uh, into the college game or into the pros, um, and then he also spent some time with the the New York Knicks that season and just wrote about both sides of that divide. I think that's an important point, you know, because I think people can get so hung up on 
on fame and um, the big superstars. And another, I think, classic sports book for me is Friday Night Lights, which is about a U.S. football team in, in Texas, um, which, you know, I've never heard of any of these players, and, and, and most people who bought that book wouldn't know any of those young men. But that was a book that, again, pulled you deep into a world and showed, I guess, the dark side of sport, um, as well as how it has such an effect on communities. And in a way, I think it was enhanced because these were not famous um, sports people. They were famous within that small world, but they weren't icons or, or legends of sport. But it was such a acute and perceptive book, I felt. I'm always interested in the process of actually writing these books. Donald, for example, in black and white, your story of Joe Lewis and Jesse Owens, how long did it take you to write that? Uh, I'd say about four years, I think. It took a long time. Um, you know, you need a number of years just together, especially if you're working on a book about events that happened many, many years ago. I spent a good sort of 18 months just on our archival work, going back to newspapers and letters. But that also is not enough. You need to actually get first-person accounts. So I needed to speak to people who knew both Jesse and Joe. This was his family people who've been close to him. That took another good sort of six months of work in the States with them. So by the time I'd spent about two and a half years, I had a lot of information, and then I spent perhaps a year actually putting the words down on paper, and it was enormously long and in need of editing. So I guess I spent another six months then hopefully fine-tuning it. So uh, it was a bit of a long old haul. (laughs) (laughs) Keith, can you knock one out in less than four years? Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I mean, that sounds that sounds perfect and ideal. Um, but the, for instance, that that bit of Mayo football, I think that was that, that was about a year because, um, well, I mean, a lot of the a lot of the uh, um, people who feature in that book are thankfully still uh, still alive and well, and also uh, you know quite close to quite close to me here uh, here in the west of Ireland. So I was able to to meet them. You know, fairly frequently and um, you know quite easily. So um, yeah, I, I sort of. I'm plus, I was kind of loosely building it or basing it around the um, the year after Mayo had lost the 2006 final. So it was around that 2007 year. And, you know, once you sort of enter into um, publishing uh, a book with 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 a company, you know, with a company, they immediately want to know, well, when when will it be finished? So you have to kind of commit to a time period and you know make that work. So that that's what happened there. Uh, but you know, I always find as well, there comes a point where you just have to say, um, you, you know, I could still be out there interviewing people um, for 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 that particular book. There there are a lot of people I just didn't manage to get that I that I wanted to get and. Just you know, they weren't around at the time or whatever. There's a guy called Jerry Garrity, for instance, that John O'Mahony uh, once said to me. You know, if he, he emigrated to Chicago, and John O'Mahony said, you know, if uh, if Jerry Garrity hadn't emigrated, I believe Mayo would have won the All Ireland in 1989, which uh, <laughs> seems like a big big claim to make. So I really wanted to meet the guy, but he just wasn't. Uh, you know, he just wasn't around. <laughs> I wouldn't worry, Keith. It seems like there'll be time for a volume two, um, Mayo, <laughs> the way things are going, but we'll leave the slide digs for the time being, I think. We might start looking at a few of the specifics. You've gone through one or two of them there, Keith. We've kind of taken three of your suggestions each, and we'll have a look at them. And Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch is one of those famous sports books of all time, certainly in the UK and probably worldwide, Donald. You've, you've got a... Um, I have to say, it's 
a long time since I read it. I do remember, I probably read it after all that there had been all the hype. And when you go in being told this is one of the great sports books, maybe you attach expectations that are a little too high. I remember being slightly disappointed. I thought it was a pretty good book without being amazing, but I know you're a big fan of it. I am. I haven't looked at it for, for many years, but I sort of I got it within weeks of its publication. And there had been a little bit of hype at that stage, but it wasn't excessive. Um, so I think I came to it with quite clear eyes and not huge expectations. I think the thing, well, I am an Arsenal fan, so that uh, it, it meant a lot to me in, in those terms. But I think um, for me, the most powerful thing about Fever Pitch was that actually... Well, significant. I think Keith and I have spoken a lot about books published in the States. Um, and I think in the U.S. there's been this long legacy of, of fantastic sports books. In the U.K. and, and I'm perhaps in Ireland as well, it, it, perhaps it wasn't quite the same case. Fever Pitch came along and I think it showed publishers that there was, in that awful term, market, there was a market for kind of intelligent and reflective sports books. And I think it gave legitimacy to lots of other authors who followed Nick Hornby. But yeah, it would be interesting to go back to it now and see how it stands up. Um, because yes, other people I know have said similar things to you that um, came to it many years later and were slightly disappointed. I remember just when Donald was speaking, I read it at precisely the same time shortly after it came out. And um, yeah, I was completely mesmerized by it at the time because it seemed so um, so different. And it was great to see a book being published where, you know, someone just talks about, um, you know, just, 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 just following the team and talks about... Um, I suppose it wasn't a particularly glamorous time either for, for, for English football and he was speaking about his own. I think, as I recall, Hormie kind of, he sometimes felt a little bit sort of ashamed almost of being a, of being a football fan. And so, yeah, I, I, I think, but it's true of a lot of sports books, you know, you could, it, it depends when, at what, at what point in your life you read them. You know, you, you know, a book that you really like when you're 24 may not be a book you like 10, 10 years later half as much. Um, but yeah, I I I I, I was a I was a, was a big fan of that book. Yeah, Donald. Another book you've included here is a handful of summers by Gordon Forbes, and I'm delighted you've included this book because I've never heard of it, and I always like when I haven't heard of a book and it can be illuminated on it. So tell us a little bit about. Well, again, that's a book I need to go back and, and look at, but it is considered, I think, a classic of uh, sports writing. It. Um, Gordon Forbes was this quite quite obscure tennis player um, from South Africa in the 1950s and perhaps early 60s. And this is just a wonderfully funny, warm book uh, on tour, what it's like to be a tennis player. And um, funny enough, uh, Mike Hatherton the other day, um, I had to do a little thing with, with him, and, and he, spoke, he picked that out as his favorite ever sports book. And um, it just made me think, wow, um, when I was a teenager, I was absolutely besotted with that book. And I think that was the book that deepened my desire to become an author. Um, so um, I would definitely suggest to anyone, it's still available, uh, just have a look, because it's certainly it's a, one of those kind of laugh-out-loud books, but so warm and witty and wise. Well, that's how it seemed to me when I was 18, 19. So who knows how I would feel now if I looked at it again. Donald's List is completed by The Fight by Norman Mailer, which is a book that we've covered in the show in the past. It deservedly ends up on these lists quite regularly. It's uh, about the uh, Rumble and Jungle in 1974, George Foreman against Muhammad Ali. Obviously, the breaks of the game, you've mentioned Keeper David Halberstam. Your other, the other two that we fine-tuned this down is Joe DiMaggio, A Hero's Life by Richard Ben Kramer. Tell us about this. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking autobiographies earlier on this. I mean, this is a, a sports biography. Um, and, I, I, you know, I'm not a massive baseball fan or anything, but I just picked this up out of curiosity. And it just spans, I mean, DiMaggio's life, you know, he was born in 1914 and died in 1999. So his life spanned the entire sort of American 20th century. And he was such a, I mean, if, if you go certainly to New York but across the States today you know you still see the those iconic photographs of, of DiMaggio he seems to have just um, endured in the uh, in the American imagination and um, the big, it's, it's, it's just really uh, he, he spent this Richard Ben Kramer spent I think five or six years researching it and spoke with, uh, with, with with you know tremendous number of people who, who knew him and it's really fascinating just about that um, um, 1950s period in the States where um, I suppose you know he he was he was uh, during the period he was with with Marilyn Monroe and he was um, kind of sort of hanging out with with with, with Frank Sinatra and that whole that whole crew. Um, so, but it also deals with his later years. Um, so it's really just about how some uh, you know relatively ordinary person, just prodigiously gifted at sports, can live this huge epic life, and then it just it just traces how it sort of how it sort of declines, and in the end he was. Um, I suppose he was really um, kind of obsessed with with uh, just just uh, I suppose really making making money of his name in in, in whatever way he could, um, and it's, it's sort of a it's a, it's a it's an elegiac book in some ways, but it's 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 really well uh, it's really well researched and written, and it's it's just got it's just got a lot of great anecdotes. Yeah, your last I, yeah, go on. If I could just mention as well, I mean, just a, there's another sports biography uh, that came out in recent years. Um, Completely different in 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 theme, but just devastating book um, by Ronald Rang called "A Life Too Short," uh, which is by the German goalkeeper Robert Enke. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, he you know Enke obviously took his own life, and it's it's a very sensitive subject. But I think um, Ronald Rang wrote about it um, and, and presents you know a really empathetic portrait of a, of a a top class sports man person who who sort of um, you know, who, who who just had his struggles. Yeah, and I do want to ask you both if you do have a recommendation for this year, but just finally, uh, the last book we're going to mention here, it's not actually a book, it's Hub Fans Bid, uh, Bid Kid Adieu by John Updike, which is part of the best sports writing of the century collection that was uh, brought out, obviously, around the turn of the century, part of that brilliant series in the US. It's American sports writing, Keith. And I, maybe it's a little bit, it's cheating a little bit. It's like being asked for your favourite album and you pick, uh, you know, you pick a greatest hits or something like that. Yeah, that's what I realised. I mean, a lot of my favourite pieces of sports writing, I think, tend to be sort of magazine length, ten or fifteen thousand words or whatever. And there's just a whole chunk of them in that book. And I, I kind of, I wish someone, I wish some publishing company would bring out um, an English or British equivalent because I think it would be uh, equally terrific. But um, that particular piece, yeah, it, it just appeared in 1960, and it was uh, about. Um, Again, another another baseball player, Ted Williams, what turned out to be his last uh, game for the Boston Red Sox in uh, Fenway Park, and it was a nothing game, sort of an end of season game, and uh, the Red Sox weren't going anywhere. But John Up- Updike, who was a pretty young writer, then just happened to uh, happened to go along there, and um, he, you know, Boston's lucky. It has two. It had two of the great sports venues. Um, the Boston Garden, which they knocked in Fenway Park, which thankfully they haven't done. Um, so he was the person who coined that phrase. He called it a lyrical bandbox. 
band box of a ballpark which uh, which kind of travels and he also as it happened uh williams hit a hit a hit a home run to finish up it was sort of improbable but he did and uh the whole thing was when he when he when he took his, his final run uh they just wanted him to tip his cap or do something to acknowledge them he had a, had a kind of a stormy relationship with the uh with the boston fans but he didn't he just uh he just kept going and ran into the dugout and that, that was the last i saw of him um so it was just a kind of a happy coincidence where he happened to be there and yeah it's just a terrific piece yeah, and I think it is fair enough to point people in the direction of that collection if they do want to see what, because I know we do tend to focus quite a lot in American sports writing in these conversations, but Donald's yeah. probably explained why that is. There has been some great stuff over the last uh, over the last 100 years or so. All right, Keith Duggan and Donald McCraylis, thanks so much to the two of you uh, for talking to us and have a happy Christmas. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Keith, and hopefully we'll catch up one day. Yeah, it'd be great to meet you, Donald. Oh, I, I really, I really, uh, really enjoy reading your reading, reading your pieces. Well, thank you, and let's, let's, we'll all get together hopefully sometime. Shane Curran with the kick out. The forty-two-year-old goalkeeper. Curran it out from goal. Here he comes. He topped it. He fought it. He's fifty yards out from goal. What a day for us, coming. All the mother niggas lame, and you know it now. When the real nigga hold you down, you're supposed to drown. Bam. 1944 is the last time I've seen your tiger come out of here. And the one, 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 one with the last one. Bam. What a day for us coming. Right, I'm really looking forward to that. Now, that's, that's the, the, the tricky period in between Christmas and New Year, sort of for me, around the 27th, 28th. Myself, Keith and Donald oh, that'll will be sit around and just talk about great sports writing. Just gabbing about. They'll probably want to know my favourite sports books Ken they were too polite to ask there but I'm sure they'll want to know and I'll tell them George Plimpton out of my league Ken oh, that's what I'll tell them George Plimpton out of my league mm. that'd be a favourite of mine too I have to say that's one of the funniest books about sport it's, I've ever it's read. certainly the funniest that I've ever read yeah. and for the time I'm in a good mood I'm in a funny kind of mood Ken yeah. I like to be amused today so that's why that's, today that's going to be my favourite sports book on another day it could be Arthur Hopcroft, the football man, we put some of our favourites up on our Tumblr page. If you get on, on on Twitter at Second Captains, we'll redirect you there. Neil Sinnott asked why none of us had put the football man as our favourite or one to look out for. On another day, I would have done that, Neil. Um, but just, mm. like I said, it was today's, like, today's Tuesday. So yeah, if it was a go. Wednesday, I was asked for the same choice. Yeah. So it'd be Open by Andragos, he was mentioned there. I love that book. Franchenko was wondering about the secret race and why that didn't feature in any of her choices well it didn't feature for this year because it wasn't this year Franchenko I don't know if you're talking about it as an all timer Secret Race Secret Race by Tyler Hamilton oh, it was last year it's last year yeah it was, it was last year if you're talking about why it didn't feature as a recommendation of an all time book it's because it's not one of the greatest sports books of all time it's one of the better books of recent probably years probably the best one of last year I think it won the William Hill Prize last year did it yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was very very good I mean it was a brilliant um sort of, uh, re- you know, revelation of a culture, you know, this sort of thing that, this doping that goes on in all sports that everyone's quite interested in. It was the first time he was the first athlete to really... Well, Floyd Landis had talked in a lot of detail. I mean, Paul Kimmich ah. did about an 80,000 word interview with Floyd yeah, Landis. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, this this was, you know, you gotta, you also gotta pre- present the material. This was, this was, um, I thought, I thought this was a very well executed book. Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it there. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you're showing me, man. <laughs>
Well, we're going to talk um, a bit about this. We, we, we were talking about a couple of weeks ago on this issue in Scottish football, uh, the question of uh, the Celtic fans um, being a bit too political. Um, well, they made a bit of a mistake at Motherwell on um, on Friday. This is the Green Brigade, a uh, bunch of fans. Uh, and fans, certainly in their section, uh, started ripping up seats and throwing around fireworks and generally causing mayhem, for which 120 of them have now been banned by a club that you sense was really keen to get the chance to ban mm-hmm. some of these guys. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, that. And, uh, Keen Vieira. Keen Vieira. Oh, Keen Vieira, of the course. Documentary's uh, on Documentary's on tonight, so uh, we're, going to be, we're going to be talking a bit about, uh, a bit about that. Email us, secondcaptains at irishtimes.com. Follow us on Twitter at secondcaptains, facebook.com forward slash secondcaptains. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Happy Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Thanks for listening. What's going on, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.